Well, good morning. Would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew 1, if you're using a blue pew Bible, you can find that on page 807. So I will start with a question that I typed into Google this past week. What does true love look like? What, what does true love look like? And uh, I typed this in on Wednesday morning. In, um, in 0.67 seconds, I got 444 million results. What does true love look like? How can I get it? And so I uh, did a little math here, and if uh, you want to fact check me and let me know after if I did it right. But if, if I were going to spend one minute on each page, that kind of the results that got fetched from this Google search, one minute on each page, it would take me 845 years to get through each one. And I think this is objective evidence that uh, true love is one of these things, and you know I'm always kind of fascinated by these things. They're kind of universal, like everybody kind of knows about it. Everybody, you hear that phrase, and you've heard it over and over again. But, but if you were to ask, then what does it mean? What's it look like? I think now all of a sudden there's this huge diversity in what we would say and what people would say. And yet, uh, the fact that there's 444 million sites that are talking about it, or web pages that are talking about it, it shows that there is just an unfathomable amount of desire to know and people who are searching for it, and people who want to see it and want to know about it. And I think in the search for how can one get it is one that many people know, and I think uh, maybe we don't say this outwardly, but the thing about Google is it reveals what we really want to know. Like if, you, if every single one of your Google searches were revealed just and put in a list this past year, I think it would tell a lot about us. Well, as we continue in our Advent series on love and we get uh, closer with each passing week to Christmas Day, uh, we are going to see two familiar stories over the next two weeks. This kind of his and hers, right? Two familiar kind of classic Christmas stories. Um, one, first this week on Joseph and then next week on Mary. And they're just kind of responses to the fact that they are told that the Messiah the, the Christ is going to be coming through you guys. It's going to be coming through your family. And these are two stories. Again, I, anytime we kind of talk about Christmas stories, my, my prayer, we just prayed about it right in the back room before coming out this morning, is that this kind of um, ancient truth that maybe you've heard uh, more times than you can count would fall fresh on us all this morning. Stir our hearts for worship. Two responses to learn from. I think both of which, as we'll see, will kind of give us a little bit of an indication, a little glimpse into what the Bible says true love looks like. And so uh, I'm going to do something a little risky this morning. I'm going to give you the big point up front. All right, so if you just want to check out for the next half hour, you can because you're getting the big point right now. All right, relieving the tension. Um, here it is. Um, my conviction is that true love looks like God's extraordinary work flowing through the ordinary obedience of his people. I think true love looks like God's extraordinary work flowing through the ordinary obedience of his people. And so um, now I want to spend some time to just show you how I think I got there from Matthew chapter 1. Um, and again, not only is this a familiar story, but th this is a journey that we're going to read this morning. It's a journey of, of this man, this ordinary guy, a carpenter, that if you saw Joseph in a lineup, you probably wouldn't be able to point him out. Nothing special about him, nothing big about him, just a guy who now is, because of the initiating love of God, now all of a sudden in a story. 
And it seems to be that those are the kind of people then and now that God loves to work through most. So Matthew chapter 1, we're going to walk through this together, starting with just verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Some high drama to start off this story. First, what we see in this journey for Joseph is Joseph's challenge. Joseph's challenge, this, this story, it provides us enough detail to give us kind of an idea what is happening, but at the same time, this story just creates a lot of questions. Maybe, that, maybe that's just, I'm not I'm a natural skeptic, but I just have a lot of questions when I read certain things, that this story creates a lot of questions. And so we kind of need to start with what we do know, and then kind of discern what we really don't know. Um, first, what we do know, that Mary, Jesus' mother, and this man named Joseph are betrothed to one another. Okay, so some background on ancient Jewish culture that I think helps provide some context here is um, a betrothal is roughly related to our present day engagement. Except the way I put it is that a betrothal is basically an engagement on steroids. Okay, there are some important differences that kind of up the ante for what kind of first century betrothal was. Um, first, it was typically arranged by the parents of the groom-to-be. Okay, so a family with a son would go find a family and choose a family and then choose a young woman within this family to be married to their son. And that, that, that was the romantic dating courting period, right? Parents went and chose for their son and just found a daughter. And so um, maybe if you're like me and the world we're in is this kind of frenetic pace that is nonstop, that there are certain times where you might look back and go, man, it would have been so much simpler to just live in this time period. It would have been so much simpler, like, just, again, the frenetic pace, all we have to worry about, all the anxiety. Like, if we just lived simple lives, like in the biblical times, that would have been great. While maybe that might be true for certain things, I think we can all agree that this is not a thing anymore, okay? And it is in many other areas of our world and cultures that still do um, arranged marriages, but I think we can just agree that, like, that's not the process anymore. I love my parents. I just don't think I want to leave it up to them to choose a woman, for me. Like, I think I'm, I'm just going to have some doubts as to how that's going to work out. And now being on the flip side, being a father to a daughter, like, just picture, like, what if a family came to me and said, hey, we have selected Brinley to be married to our son. Like, yeah, what if we think your son's a punk? Like, do we have, like, do we have any veto power in this? Can I just be like, um, thanks, but no thanks, Harold. Uh, we're going to move on from your son, and we're going to wait for somebody else. Like, I just, if I can't do that, i got some issues with this process. Um, but anyway, it's arranged. And not only is it arranged, but it is legally binding, meaning that there would be an actual um, prenuptial, prenuptial documents that were uh, drafted, that were signed before witnesses, because it just doesn't get much more romantic than signing your life over to somebody you didn't choose, okay? Like, I'm waiting for that Hallmark special movie on that story. Uh, it hasn't come yet, all right? Um, so now, the only way in this culture that you could break a betrothal is to get a legal divorce. 
So that is why Matthew refers to Joseph and Mary in this passage as husband and wife, even though they're not married yet. Because they are in a legally binding betrothal, a um, time period that would typically last one year. And it was considered immoral to ever have any kind of sexual relations during this time period. And so that's why we're told they are legally betrothed. They are talked about as husband and wife, but they have not yet come together and consummated this marriage. And so with that background, Matthew drops the bomb. Mary's pregnant. She's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And with that, Joseph faces the most significant challenge of his life. It's generally assumed that at this point, Mary is about four months pregnant. Because as we'll see more next week in Luke chapter 1, Mary herself is told that she has conceived, that she is with child. Then she immediately goes into what's called the the hill country, as Luke describes it, to visit um, her relative Elizabeth and stays with her three months. So if you just talk about travel time where she went, three months with Elizabeth, travel time when she comes home, probably about four months pregnant when she's back in Nazareth. Here's what we don't know. When did Mary tell Joseph? When when did Mary tell Joseph what happened to her, that she was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Like, did she tell her right away and then went to go visit Elizabeth? Did she kind of get away and then come back and now this this little baby bump has now added, like, outed her, right? Like, you just can't hide that after a while. Personally, my guess is that Mary probably shared this with Joseph right away, that, that she was with child even though she was a virgin. Because if you look in that passage in Luke 1, the angel never tells her she needs to keep silent. But either way, here's what Joseph now faces. His fiance is pregnant in a culture where the implications of this are far more than just some judgmental glances from family and strangers. Like, this looks like love gone wrong. This looks like just another incident of the fallen world, um, especially in the area of sexual immorality. The optics of this say either Joseph and Mary broke the rules of the betrothal period, and now Joseph is guilty himself, implicated himself, or Mary committed adultery on Joseph by being with somebody else, and now Joseph is embarrassed and now starts his family marked in sin. Either way... The sky's between a rock and a hard place. And it appears he does not believe Mary. At least not enough to go through with it. And so just thinking about this, let me just ask the men in this room, put yourself in his shoes right now. What would you do? What would you do? Your fiance who you've never been with is four months pregnant for the world to see. What would you do? And by the way, we're not told what kind of state Joseph's faith is in at this point. Is he a man of God, who's one of the few probably in this time period that is um, fully surrendering himself to the Lord? Um, is he kind of legalistic and pharisaical like it seems to be common in this area? Is he just kind of apathetic to God and faith, a Jewish man who grew up in the culture but just not for him? He never owned his parents' faith. It, wasn't, it was never, never really stuck to him. Like, like what's Joseph's faith in this place? We, we don't know. All we know... That according to Matthew, he was a just man, an upright man. Again, that maybe tells you a few things, but doesn't tell you everything. And he didn't want Mary to suffer. 
even though he clearly did not want to go through with this marriage. He, he, he still did not, he cared about her enough to not want to see her suffer because um, sexual unfaithfulness had a steep penalty in the Mosaic law. So if he were to go through with this divorce, which we're told he resolved to do, um, best case scenario, Mary is a single mother with no rights of her own. And now is deemed unwanted by other families who are looking for wives for their sons. A life of hardship and poverty in this culture is her best case scenario upon divorce. Worst case, she's found guilty of adultery and put to death. So Joseph seems to want to spare her life. And in the midst of the confusion, he just decides, I, I just can't do it. I, I, I don't want Mary to be killed by, or ashamed, but at the end of the day, I just don't believe her. It can't be that the only baby ever to be born without a sexual union in the history of the world happens to be my fiancé. I just can't get my mind there. I can't bring myself to believe. And so he resolves to end it. We're going to look at this verse in a little bit, but I just want you to look the first few words of the next verse, verse 20. I think it easily gets looked over. It says, but as he considered these things. You, you see what's happening there? Joseph, we're told, des- decided in his heart to divorce her. But even before the angel came, he's still wrestling with it. He's still deliberating. He's still considering these things. And so I asked the question, considering what things? That Mary is pregnant with God's child. That what if she is telling the truth? Certainly being a Jewish man growing up in this culture, he's familiar at the very least with the scriptures. Familiar with the fact that they're constantly pointing forward towards this Messiah who would deliver Israel. Is it possible this could actually be it? Perhaps Joseph's going to the local synagogue and he's pulling the rabbis on the side after the service asking about um, theories of the Messiah. How is he going to come? Where is he going to come? When is he going to come? Could it be a baby? It exposes seeds of doubt in his unbelief. I want you to think about this. The, the question of doubt, when we talk about it, usually gets posed towards believers who struggle with doubt in their belief. But what about the fact that it's also possible to struggle with doubt in unbelief? Doubt goes both ways. Even today, for those who hear the gospel... Those who hear that Jesus is the only way to salvation, who, who hear the call to surrender fully to Christ, and just, they see it all, and they just said, I, like Joseph, I just can't get there. I can't get my mind there. Yeah, I could fake it and, and fool some people, but I know in my heart, I just can't believe what happens when doubt creeps in there. What if it is true? What if Jesus is the answer to a fulfilled life, to a glorifying life of the Father? What if it could be that God's gift to me was Christ and it was brought before me all along, if only I would receive it? First, Joseph's challenge is put on display. Let's keep going. Verses 20 to 23. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph, in the midst of one of probably several sleepless nights, tossing and turning, finally passes out out of sheer exhaustion, and he has a dream. And an angel comes and reveals, above all, the initiating love of God. The initiating love of God, not only towards him and on his life, but towards the entire world. And do you see what the, how the angel starts? He says, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. This tells us something about Joseph. This tells us something about the reason why he's not going through with this marriage. And the reason is fear. Fear of what it would mean for him. Fear of the shame he might incur. Fear of how this could impact his carpenter business. Fear of just getting unfair blame. Fear of silent judgment. Fear how everything might change if he believes. Fear of the unknown. And then the angel goes on to reveal the love of God in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And it is in these verses we read about the most incredible miracle that includes the most remarkable mystery that the world has ever known. Don't hear that and just let that gloss over you. Think about this. The most remarkable miracle the world has ever known is here, right in front of us in written form. The miracle that God sent his eternal son to be born as a baby to a virgin. Oh, that we would be captivated and fascinated once again by the glory of a familiar story that tends to get read with no emotion. God with us, in the form of a baby boy born to an obscure family with parents who struggled with doubt. Like, are you serious? What love of God, what sacrifice, what amazing grace. The virgin birth is not just the neat little detail in this story. The virgin birth is vital to the gospel. And if you ditch the virgin birth and your belief in it, the gospel gets tossed out as well. Why? Because when you reflect on this, when you go deep into this, you find that a baby born biologically to a woman and supernaturally sent by God is the only way God could restore a fallen world. For by being born of a woman, he is fully human with all the attributes of man, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Jesus ate 
because he got hungry. Jesus slept because he got tired. His muscles got sore after walking an entire day. Jesus got splinters while doing woodwork. He got frustrated. He felt compassion. We're told he was tempted in every way. And yet at the same time, he is fully divine with all the attributes of God, full authority, full power, full control, and above all, a love for those who have sinned and fallen away. You put those two together, fully human, fully divine, and you have the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. The most captivating miracle in the Bible, in the history of the world, and again, the only way, only way, God could provide a way for sinners while not letting sin go unpunished. The Messiah needs to be fully man, or else he can't stand in man's place. And he cannot fulfill God's law being lived out and, and then be an atoning sacrifice for those who couldn't measure up on their own. People like me, and people like you, and people like Joseph. And yet, with a sin nature that man has, the only way that a man could live a perfect life without blemish in complete holiness is if God himself came down. And so we find it is only a triune three-in-one God where God the Father and the power of God the Holy Spirit sends God the Son into the world through a virgin to be a fully man and to be fully God and to make a way for freedom. It's stunning. And if you toss that away, you toss out the gospel itself. The manger is where Jesus entered in, but it is at the cross where God's love and God's justice collide together in such a way that sets sinners free. If only it would be received through faith. And the angel says, you shall name him Jesus. Jesus, a name that in this first culture was actually one of the most common names within the Jewish um, people. A name that meant literally Yahweh saves. And the reason why it was so common at the time is because it was a symbolic name uh, given by Jewish parents to uh, boys in hope of the Lord sending a Messiah to free Israel from Roman oppression. They wanted to be delivered of this oppression. They wanted to be their own people. But the angel reveals that this Jesus will not just free them. Actually, he will not free them from physical oppression at all. He'll be killed by this uh, Roman government. But he will do even greater things. The angel says, he's not come to deliver you from the Romans. He's come to deliver you from Satan. He's come to save his people from their sins. And in that way, he will fulfill the premier promise that came through the mouths of the Old Testament prophets. That Jesus has not come to take, he has come to give. And by his blood, to free people from the yoke of slavery, to free people from the yoke of having to be better, to free people from, from those who need to do more, to free them into complete surrender and joy in his name. What a revelation. 
Jesus changes everything. Let's finish this passage. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's the thing. After that, this revelation, there was still a decision to be made by Joseph. The angel does not force him to do anything. The angel does not take control of his mind. The angel does not threaten him. The angel does not compel him. The angel merely reveals the love of God to him. And then this is the climax of the passage. What's he going to do? What would you do? Where is he going to go as a result of confronting the love, mercy, and grace of God? Joseph has a decision to make. And so let's be clear about a couple of things. First, the things that, that caused the fear before the angel came, none of those are gone. If he chooses to stay with Mary and to parent this child, there's still, still the things that remain that cause fear. He's still going to wonder, what, what will this mean for him? Fear of the shame he was going to incur. Fear of the, the things that, how it would impact his business. Fear of the unfair blame. Fear of the silent judgment. Fear of the unknown. It's all still there. So what it does tell us is this. That God does not remove all fear from our lives. He doesn't make the pathway clear or easy. He merely reveals himself in the midst of those things. And the difference on this side of the dream, is not the removal of fear, but the difference is the addition of God's love and grace in Jesus Christ. And it changes everything. And so we're told at the climax, Jesus, Joseph did it. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He stayed in. He didn't bail. He stayed in faith. And he honored the call of the betrothal until she gave birth. Joseph obeyed. Joseph's obedience. So often we hear that word obedience and it feels just kind of cold, right? It feels legalistic. It feels overly religious and uptight. But it is clear all throughout the scriptures that obedience is the mark of true love and the result of faith in the people of God. True love is always a two-way street. And that is why, as I said at the outset, that true love looks like God's extraordinary work flowing through the ordinary obedience of his people. God's extraordinary work, our ordinary obedience. Obedience to God's command is not the reason why God loves you, but it is the result of truly experiencing God's love. In that way, obedience is not an enemy to the gospel. Obedience is intimately tied to the gospel, for it shows that we have been transformed. Hear me, it is impossible, it is impossible for the love of God to take root in someone's life and not utterly transform the way they think, act, and love. 
It doesn't mean we're perfect. God, no. Because we're all on this journey together of growing in Christ-likeness as we travel along imperfectly from now until glory. But it does mean we are striving for growth and obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Over and over again in the scriptures, not Matthew 1, over and over again, we see God's extraordinary work flowing through the ordinary obedience of his people. God could have designed things differently. He could have designed the world in such a way where he brings about his son any way he pleases, reveals it any way he pleases, uses people any way he pleases, but he chooses in his divine sovereignty to move through the decisions of an ordinary man and an ordinary woman to respond to his love and revelations in obedience. Even when the obedience proves to be costly. Joseph did not obey the angel's command because he knew all the peripheral benefits he was going to get from it. He knew that those fears he had were not unfounded because the reality is, even from this decision onward, Joseph, it costed him big time. We don't know all the extent of the persecution he received from this, especially during this betrothal period, but we do know hardship he faced during the birth and afterwards where he would have to bring his very pregnant wife on a journey to Bethlehem because of a census, where he would have to play doctor in the stable during the delivery, where he would have to then flee to Egypt with a newborn afterwards in order to escape a king that wanted his baby dead. It was not roses and sunflowers for our man Joseph from here on out. This was costly obedience. And yet, he was fulfilled in doing and obeying, not because it was easy, but because it was right. Obedience to God's commands out of our great love for him is best because it's right. True love means doing what is right. And the more we love God because he first loved us, that will be made evident by our level of obedience to him. Jesus himself would grow and in his grow up and in his last week he would give a whole lot of teaching his last week of life and we read this in John 14:15 very simple very clear he tells his disciples if you love me you will keep my commandments doesn't get any clearer than that 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 love is not primarily shown by how much scripture we have memorized Love is not uh, primarily shown by how emotional we get while singing. Not that either of those things are wrong, but rather primarily our love will be shown by our obedience to him as a result of believing in him. It's not just about doing good for the sake of being good. It's, It's about being transformed for the sake of glorifying God. And Joseph did this. And again, we don't know what level of his faith he had going in before this revelation, but we do know his level of faith and love for God afterwards. He believed and he obeyed. And so hear me, this is a call to faith to those who have been hearing it, 
to those who maybe have been wrestling through it, to those who maybe have even resolved at one point that, you know what, I just can't get there. I can't get my mind there. Like Joseph, I am just telling you this morning, this is the Holy Spirit knocking, revealing, putting the love of God on display so that you would believe. For every person who's considering faith and, and considering just what it means to believe, you know a big reason why people just ultimately can't get there and, and, and just won't get there? It's because of what we see in Joseph. It's because of fear. And it's not unfounded fear. A lot of it is legitimate fear. Fear of what would happen to their lives if they did. Of things that might have to change. Of things that would have to get exposed and rooted out. Fear of the unknown. How is that going to impact my relationships? How is that going to impact my family? Legitimate fear. And believing in God does not remove those things. It puts the love of Christ in its place. I can't tell you that surrendering your life to him is going to be easy or that obedience won't be costly, but I can tell you it will be right and it will be best. And I pray this will be true of you this Advent season. And for those in here, I know many in here who already are in Christ, this is a call to continual obedience. Continual obedience to God that flows out of your love for God. This is not a duty-bound kind of white-knuckle obedience. This is a freedom to obey. This is an opportunity to be the vessels through which God's extraordinary work flows. And it occurs not only in the Bible, but in our lives most often through long-term, ordinary, spirit-empowered obedience to his commandments. Obedience is not boring. But on the contrary, it provides ultimate meaning to otherwise mundane tasks. Okay, because of your position in Christ, there is no mundane anymore. There is no meaningless. This provides purpose to your life every morning. You wake up, swing the legs out of bed, and start doing the things you've been called to do. This implies that those kind of forgettable routine Tuesday mornings that are filled with meetings or with classes or changing diapers or grocery shopping or exercising, those are the exact purposeful things that God will use to bring about his great and better purposes. His extraordinary work flows through the ordinary obedience of his people. Obedience that above all else, God will use to strengthen the church and make disciples of all nations. So here's how I'll end. We just extracted this out of Matthew 1, where God entered the framework, broke into human history, Emmanuel, God with us, and he worked through the obedience of an ordinary man. And with that backdrop, in the first chapter of Matthew, I want to read you the very last verses of Matthew's gospel, where he finishes. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.
true love. Not just with Joseph, but today. God's extraordinary work flows through the ordinary obedience of his people. It's how he began. It's how he ends. And he says, go make disciples. Teach them to observe. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, for I have equipped them to do so by my death and resurrection. And finally, the very last line, I am with you until the end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for ancient truth, and it is my prayer for myself, for everybody in here this morning, that this truth would not just be something to nod our heads at, that this truth would be used to transform us, to fall afresh upon us, and wherever we are at in our faith journey, Lord, I pray that being confronted by your word, we might take that next step to belief, to obedience to making disciples of all nations. We thank you that we get to play a part in your work. And Father, let us play it well. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.